Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. The passage before us in Isaiah speaks of a coming deliverance of God's people from captivity. And uh, it's somewhat reminiscent of the deliverance that uh, we see taking place in Eastern Europe as people who've been captives for decade after decade are suddenly, amazingly, beginning to have a taste of deliverance and freedom. And uh, if you receive missionary correspondence like I do, uh, you are aware of the fact that a lot of this uh, has been sparked by Christians uh, there behind the Iron Curtain. Here's a letter from uh, one missionary couple that say, What most news reports in the United States fail to mention is that in many cases, followers of Jesus are at the center of these changes. It's not exaggerated to say that the Church of Jesus Christ in East Germany, for instance, has been the midwife of the revolution. For many years, freedom-loving groups in East Germany were persecuted and harassed by the communist parties. The only place they could find to meet relatively freely was in the churches. Through the years, more and more Christians became involved in the struggle for freedom. It goes on to mention that uh, when the communist dictator in East Germany, Erich Honecker, was removed from his post and then was uh, kicked out of his villa, that the new government refused to provide any uh, housing for his wife or himself. And uh, here's Eric Honecker and his wife standing homeless on the street, hated by the entire nation. But the church stepped in and asked Pastor Hugh Homer, uh, who's in charge of a Christian help center north of Berlin, if he'd be willing to take them in. And so he did. Uh, he didn't really have room in his help center, so he took them into his own apartment. What a contrast, a strange scene when the old couple arrived, the former absolute ruler of the country being sheltered by one of the Christians whom he and his wife had despised and persecuted. Pastor Homer sees that the Lord's command, love your enemies, applies in this case, as in others. Well, a great deliverance is taking place. In Isaiah 40, a great deliverance is predicted for the people of God. In verses 1 and 2, you have the command to comfort God's people. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. 
who are to be comforted, my people, says the Lord. Now, these would be the true believers among the people of Israel. In the 39th chapter, it had been predicted by Isaiah that the people of Israel would go into captivity in Babylon. Uh, this happened after Isaiah's death. Uh, he's writing this around 700 B.C., and uh, the captivity didn't start until around 600 B.C. But nonetheless, he predicts the captivity, as does later Jeremiah and so on. And But here he's speaking, apparently, to those who've gone into captivity and telling them that there'll be an end to it. There'll be a point where their warfare is accomplished, their hard times uh, will be over, as their sins have been paid for, her iniquity is pardoned, for she's received double for all of her sins. Not that God has uh, punished her more than she deserved, but for her sins she's received the counterpart and punishment. And there'd be a point where it would be time to comfort them. And then it mentions the coming of the Lord. In uh, verse 3, you have uh, a voice crying. You have three voices. The first voice cries like this. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Here's a voice heralding the coming of the Lord. The Living Bible paraphrase it like this. Listen, I hear the voice of someone shouting. Now, what does he cry? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The preparation necessary for the Lord to come. It says, every valley shall be exalted. And every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. That's the language of building a highway. If you exalt the valleys and level the hills and make straight the crooked area, that's the language of building a road. Now, prepare a highway that the Lord can travel down as he comes. And when he comes... It will be a grand and public event, says Isaiah. Verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Here's this revelation of the Lord as he comes, and everyone sees his glory. Notice where the voice cries. It's in the wilderness Prepare, it says, the voice of one that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Who is this voice that cries like this? Matthew Henry says in his commentary, the voice may be prophets during the exile in Babylon uh, who uh, spoke to the people. You could apply it to them. But you must apply it to John the Baptist. In the New Testament, and Mark's gospel, 
chapter 1, and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Here's this voice who prepares the way, who builds a highway, John the Baptist. Isaiah hears John the Baptist, 700 years before John is born, crying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. How do you prepare the way of the Lord? John cries in the wilderness, and he preached in the wilderness, but the real wilderness was in people's hearts, a moral wilderness. And uh, the highway would be prepared in that moral wilderness as John called on men to repent. John's basic message, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. Repent. And uh, we say, what is repentance? Well, it's being dead in earnest about removing obstacles from your life, uh, doing God's will, dealing with specific sins. When the soldiers came to John, they said, what must we do? And he gave them specific directions that applied to their lives. He said, do not lay hands on any man in violence. Don't abuse your office as a soldier. And... Be content with your wages. Quit griping. Specific sins that those soldiers were guilty of, and he deals specifically with them. To others, he gave other specific directions about their specific sins. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. Now, repentance is essential to the Lord traveling into men's lives. It's essential that we proclaim repentance. That note has been missing from the evangelical pulpit in America for some years now in some areas. That's what this recent book, The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur, is all about. John MacArthur takes to task many in the evangelical camp who have taught that since salvation is by grace, it's not necessary that men repent in order to be saved. Uh, he particularly takes on Charles Ryrie, Ryrie Bible, who edited the Ryrie Bible, and Zane Hodges, two professors until recently at Dallas Theological Seminary, along with others. And... Uh, shows how erroneous their teachings have been, where they have, in effect, discarded repentance or what is sometimes called lordship salvation. There's a chapter in 
Ryrie's book, Balancing Your Christian Life, which is entitled, Must Jesus Be Lord in Order to Be Savior? And Ryrie starts off that chapter like this. He says, uh, James Packer says yes. John Stott says yes. A.W. Pink says yes. I say no. And both of these cannot be the true gospel. Well, he's right. Both of these cannot be the true gospel. But Jesus must be Lord in order to be Savior. You cannot separate those two things. Know this, nor of the terms complain, where Jesus comes, he comes to reign. No such thing as receiving Jesus Christ and doing your own will, being your own master. No man can serve two masters. In uh, MacArthur's book, he says, uh, The Ryrie Study Bible includes a synopsis, a synopsis of doctrine that lists repentance as a false addition to faith. Or another uh, quote from... Thomas Constable, uh, the gospel message in the book Walverd. Walverd was the president of Dallas until recently. The book Walverd, a tribute, says the Bible requires repentance for salvation, but repentance does not mean to turn from sin nor a change in one's conduct. Biblical repentance is a change of mind or attitude concerning either God, Christ, dead works, or sin. In other words, you have to acknowledge that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner, but you don't have to turn from your sin. So that takes the real cutting edge out of repentance and changes repentance to something that is not biblical repentance. Another uh, point, <clears throat> a point that uh, is made by MacArthur, he says, in the New Testament, or in the Bible, metanoia, the Greek word for repentance, always speaks not just of a change of mind, but a change of purpose, a turning from sin, a redirection of the human will, a purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. And the New Testament and John in his preaching <clears throat> require fruit worthy of repentance. Not just saying you repent, but a change of behavior evidencing that your repentance is genuine. Jesus told a parable about uh, the two sons whose father told them to go work in the field. And the first son said, no, I will not go work in the field. But later he repented and went and worked in the field. The second son says, yes, I go, but he didn't go. Jesus said, which of the two did their father's will? The Pharisees answered, the first son. He said, that's right. And he said, the, Pharise the publicans, the sinners... I like that first son. Their conduct initially was, no, I will not obey you, God. But then at the preaching of John, they repented and they entered the kingdom and began to do God's will. 
The Pharisees, who were religious people, you're like the second son. You say, I go, I obey, but you don't. Real repentance has to do with yielding our wills in obedience. Jack Eckerd traveled around Florida with Charles Colson, presenting to the Florida legislature and others some of the prison reforms that Chuck Colson was advocating. Jack Eckerd would introduce Chuck Colson by saying, Chuck Olson is a great man. He has a great message for us. Chuck is born again. I'm not. I wish I was. That's the way he would introduce Chuck. And Chuck would talk to him between the speeches about Jesus and give him things to read. Finally, Jack Eckerd said, I, I now realize what's involved and I'm ready to make a commitment. But then Jack Eckerd walked in one of his drugstores. And there he saw Penthouse Magazine and Playboy Magazine. Now, if Jack is really repentant, what will Jack do? Jack called up the president and said, Take Penthouse and Playboy out of my drugstores. And the president said, No. They bring us $3 million a year. Jack said, I don't care what they bring us. Take them out of my drugstores. And then he sat down and wrote a letter to the other drug chains, 7-Eleven, etc., and said, here's what I've done. Why don't you do what I've done? No one answered him. No one, didn't, no one wanted to lose those millions of dollars. But within a year, as pressure began to mount, others joined him in that. And 15,000 stores across the country had taken those magazines out. Fruit worthy of repentance is what the Bible calls for. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. That doesn't mean salvation isn't by grace. Salvation is a sheer gift. We do not earn God's forgiveness by our repentance. Nonetheless, repentance is an essential condition of being saved. It doesn't make atonement for our sins. Christ made atonement for our sins. Why don't men repent? What holds them back? Uh, We can see the cost. It's costly. One of the men that Herod spoke to, or that John the Baptist spoke to, was Herod. Herod went to hear John preach. And the Bible says that he heard him gladly. Because he says he knew that John was a just man and a man of God. Whenever he would hear John preach, something in Herod said, that man is speaking the truth of God, and I need to do what he said. And it says he did many things because of John. Maybe he quit cursing as much. Maybe he quit gambling as much. Maybe he quit drinking as much. Maybe he canceled his subscription to Playboy. He did many things because of John. But then one day John leveled a finger at, at uh, Herod and he said, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife 
There's a relationship with a woman that's wrong. And Herod wasn't willing to deal with that. Herod wasn't willing to part with his favorite sin. That holds men back from real repentance. The love of sin. The unwillingness to deal with our favorite sin. And a little later, uh, when uh, Herodias' daughter danced before Herod in a banquet scene, and everyone is applauding, and Herod calls her up and says, What do you want? Up to half of my kingdom. She said, Just one thing, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It says, Herod, for his oath's sake, and for the sake of those who sat with him, concern about his reputation, sent and had John's head cut off. What holds men back from real repentance? The love of sin, the fear of the disapproval, the ridicule of the world. Well, John came and proclaimed... Make straight in the desert a highway. Remove those obstacles. Repent. Have you done that? That's the first voice that Isaiah heard. The second voice is in verse 6. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth. Because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it, surely the people is grass. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The instability of man, the immutability of God and his word. And uh, the third voice, verse 9. O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him, because his reward is with him and his work before him. Well, the third voice is that of the people themselves, the people of God. And they're to cry good news, the good news that the Lord God will come and his reward is with him and his work before him. Well, he did come, didn't he? John Harold is coming. And the Lord God came in human flesh. The Son of God became man. A public event. And uh, his work was before him. And he finished his work. When he died, Jesus said, it is finished. Just before dying, he said, Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He came, of course, to die for our sin. Professor Bruce Riggins of McCormick Seminary tells of meeting a lady in London who was doing an amazing work with the underprivileged. and <clears throat> She is a Christian. And he was struck with her dedication. He said... Uh, to her, what inspired you to work with these underprivileged like this? She said, well, you need to know my background. I was a Jew. 
during uh, the Gestapo days of Hitler. And as a young woman, I was fleeing in France from the Gestapo. A Christian lady took me into her home, and then the Gestapo was going to uh, discover me there. We were breathing down our neck, and I said, I must leave. <clears throat> and uh, she said, that's right, you must leave. But to leave me, your identification. And uh, I will be taken, and, and you escape. I'll be you. I'll take your place. And the Jews said, why would you do a thing like that? And she said, well, in light of what Christ did for me, he took my place. It's the least I can do for you. And she did. She took the Jewish lady's identification. She was captured. She was placed in a concentration camp. She died within six months. The Jewish lady was so moved that she became a Christian and was dedicating her life to working with the underprivileged. Well, that's the good news that this third voice heralds, the people of God herald that the Lord came and he had a, a work to do and he did that work and his work involved taking our place, our identification, paying for our sin so we could be set free. Through repentance and faith, through surrender of our wills to his will, through trust in him, John not only called on men to repent, but he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's what we're to do. We're to call on men to repent. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. But we're to point to the Lord Jesus. That sight of a crucified Savior can break the hardest heart. He came to do a finished work, and he came to be a shepherd. In verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arm. He shall carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He's our shepherd when he's our Savior. Notice what God is like. This God who had come. In verse 12, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Look how great God is. Look at the majesty of God. God created the universe. And God uh, engineered it. Uh, you would build something in the sandlot in your backyard. Well, that's how God built the universe. He measured it out. Uh, he weighed the mountains in the scales. You know, those people who were in captivity, they to be comforted. How do you comfort those kind of people? Well, you say, God will come and he will deliver. Well, what is he like? Here's what he's like. He is able to deliver. When the thing seems hopeless, there's always hope. When you're afraid, repentance may seem impossible. 
You're Jack Eckert, and you think, $3 million? How in the world can we make up $3 million? I cannot deal with this thing. Yes, you can, because God will be with you, and God is the one who hung the earth out there and measured it in a balance. In verse 12, uh, it uh, speaks of his greatness there, of his power. Verse 13, of his wisdom. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, of being his counselor, taught him? With whom took he counsel? Who instructed him, taught him in the path of judgment, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? His sovereign control. Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket and accounted as a small dust of the balance. God is like that. And you don't need to be afraid to tackle anything with him on your side. He is able to deliver. What will you compare God to? In verse 18, to whom will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare him? The workman melted the graven image. The goldsmith spread it over with gold and cast his silver chains. He is so impoverished that he hath no oblation. He that is so impoverished he hath no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. Here's a, an idol. Will you compare God to an idol, the false idols that men worship? No. Verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It's he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. It stretches out the heavens as a curtain, spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth his vanity. God is sovereign over everything. What are the consequences for us? The attitude of the people, then, verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed from my God? They say, God is not going to help. He doesn't know about our needs. Uh, he will not undertake. Oh, yes. God answers in verse 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the end of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. He will give you the power to tackle whatever you need to tackle in this life. When you're spiritually faint, to them that hath no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The same power that supports the heavens is pledged to support you. The revolution in Romania started when a pastor was going to be removed from his pulpit. Laszlo Tokes. Laszlo Tokes... Uh, was in Romania there. He'd been a gadfly to both the church and the state as he spoke out on issues that needed to be spoken about. 
And the revolution that ended Romania's tyranny can be said to have been born last fall when government and church leaders tried to evict Tokes from his pulpit at the Hungarian Reformed Church in Timoseir. In September, he was attacked in his home by four mugs. Doubtless the secret police had uh, arranged this. He and his wife and two friends who were there battled back. Three months later, the police came to deport him. He ran to his church, and his congregation surrounded the church and uh, formed a human chain. Others came and joined from other churches. But after short-lived resistance, he was led away by the authorities. That afternoon, the people of the city assembled in the main square to protest. The dictator ordered the, the police to fire. Several thousand died, and the revolution began. Where do you receive the kind of strength that that pastor received to stand up and face the opposition. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increases strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The fact that God was to come was to comfort these people. The fact that he has come should comfort us. We've seen the fulfillment of this great promise of Isaiah. What is our relationship to the one who has come? Is he our shepherd? Have we surrendered our will to him? Or are we refusing? Are we like the son who says he goes but doesn't really? Have we really repented, really surrendered our will to him? We see what God is like, think of it when he's on our side. We see what God is like, think of it when we are against him and he is not on our side. Why not repent? Why not do what the first son did and turn and do your father's will, trusting in him to handle the problems that come out of that? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, do you have a master? Have you been saying you're a Christian but living life the way you want to live it? What determines your choices? Is it his revealed will? Are you facing a problem, fearful of tackling something that's real painful and difficult uh, to do God's will? Wait upon the Lord. Renew your strength in Him. Go ahead and tackle it at trusting Him to be with you. If you've never really surrendered your will, do that right now. It has to be real, but you can do it as you sit here. Pray in your heart and tell the Lord that you want to surrender your will to Him. You're willing to have a master. You understand the cost. Ask Him to show you Anything in your life you need to deal with in terms of sin, 
It may be a relationship. It may be a habit. It may be something in your past you need to go back and make right. Restitution. Whatever it is. Build that highway. Remove those obstacles. Let us pray. You have never made the commitment. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I am ready to do your will. I've been seeing that I would, but I haven't been doing it. But now I'm ready. And I trust you to change me, empower me, come into my life, and give me your strength to tackle your will. In Jesus' name, amen.